G'day, humans. Welcome to the show that doesn't deal in absolutes, that doesn't deal in blacks and whites. So many shows, so many politicians, so many commentators, so much of your social media feed expects either your agreement or disagreement, either your furious love or your furious anger. I do not. I ask only that we give each other the benefit of the doubt that we wrestle with ideas we reject as well as those we think are right. Let's escape the dogmas of conventional wisdom. Let's have conversations that straddle the cultural divide and make us all just a little uncomfortable. Today on the show, the feminist who feminists love to hate... Uh, well, not all feminists. Obviously, many feminists love her, including her. I mean, being a feminist herself, I'm sure she loves herself. And I'm something of a feminist, so I would put me in that basket as well. So there are at least two feminists in the world who love Christina Hoff Summers. Her and me. She's a philosopher, and uh, she was a pioneering thinker about feminism uh, she came of age in the 60s and 70s, but really wrote about feminism most powerfully in the 90s, arguing for what she thinks of as a kind of equity feminism, meaning a sort of classical liberal feminism, a libertarian feminism, which might be contrasted against victim feminism or gender feminism. She doesn't want to frame feminism as being something that has an irrational hostility towards men. She wrote a book in 1994 called Who Stole Feminism in 2000, another book called The War Against Boys. Uh, look, she's quite a lightning rod in the United States. You would know her if you're, if you're very online and if you're into Twitter. She's sometimes associated with the kind of intellectual dark web type community. Uh, but she's a fascinating thinker about gender and political correctness and wokeness and academia. Please enjoy this conversation with the one and only Christina Hoff Summers. took it in New York recently? What took me to New York is that I was vaccinated and I wanted to party and have a great time. And my son is there and my <laughs> friends were having a party. And it, it was wonderful. The world was restored. This was about three weeks ago. And I even went to a comedy club and the, the comedy cellar in, in Greenwich Village. Uh. And it was you know, full of people laughing, the worst possible thing for COVID, but we've all been vaccinated. Now, what was interesting is you couldn't get in unless you had your vaccination card, mm. uh, which I had. And, um, but once we were in there, I was, I felt safe. And was there, now, is there social distancing or masks or anything? Nothing. Well, there might be now. Right. But three weeks ago was different. Three weeks ago, we were finished with it. It was over. Yeah. <laughs> And then this Delta variant has come back and frightened everyone. So, what was um, the comedy? What were they? What were the comics talking about? Like in, for a start, I'm so intrigued by the whole vaccination card thing because here in Australia we haven't started differentiating between people who are vaccinated and unvaccinated because we haven't really had enough vaccines to start blaming people who aren't vaccinated yet. <laughs> we're only getting up to, uh, I think we're we're approaching 50% uh, first dose. 
So we're run, running as hard as we can towards the finish line, but it, would, it doesn't seem fair to discriminate against people who haven't been vaccinated just yet. Well, well have you been vaccinated? Yes, I've gotten both my doses because I'm over 40, so I was eligible. But like it, because of, we have universal health care, there's a system to it. It's not just like, oh, I'm able to get it because my private insurer you know, can give it to me. You have to be in a category that is worked out by epidemiologists in advance and provided through Medicare because um, we have Medicare for everybody. So I've got, I've, I've had it, but that doesn't really get me, that doesn't do anything. <laughs> that doesn't do anything for me in practice, except for giving me the peace of mind that I'm not going to end up dead. Right. And uh, you, as far as I can tell, even if you're exposed to it and get it, once you've been vaccinated, it's a mild case. At yeah, yeah, exactly. That's right. And so, but I'm interested in the vaccination cards because here we, everyone has the same healthcare portal in the sense that everyone has a Medicare card and so everyone can log into Medicare and on their phone they can pull up the same uniform accredited uh, QR code type vaccine thing like it'll be I think almost impossible to forge but are you saying that you just have a physical card in your wallet like couldn't I just photocopy your card and white out your name and put mine in I think so <laughs> good old America I, I got the vaccine it it's Six Flags, which is a sort of an <laughs> Yeah, I love Six Flags. Yeah. I know, I loved it. It was closed, but <laughs> the military had taken it over. And hundreds and hundreds of people. It was the most efficient operation I'd ever seen. And I just went there, never had to get out of the car. And then somebody gave me this little card, which doesn't look very official, but maybe yeah. there's something on it. That's no, I don't think there is. I think that's just the way America rolls, baby. You, I mean, yeah. you got to believe my, my disbelief when I got to America and as a foreigner, America does such a great job of pub pr promoting itself to the rest of the world as the biggest, most cutting edge. I mean, and of course, many parts of it are from Silicon Valley to the entertainment industry and, and, and big tech. But when you get there and start interacting with American bureaucracy, you realize this is this is just the most developed third world country in the world, really. Like when I got my social security card and it was a piece of cardboard, of lightweight cardboard with a number printed on it, I was like, there's no photo, there's no fingerprint, there's no nothing. No wonder no wonder people who come across the border illegally can just buy random social security cards and then become eligible to work. There's no verification. Yeah, yeah. I have a little dog that has to have proof of rabies. Yes. And it's more official looking, than, <laughs> certainly, than my vaccine card, but, but it's more official looking than my social security card. Yeah, that's you don't even use it. You just, it's uh, just, a, as you say, it looks yeah. like a ticket to a movie theater or something. And like, so, and like my Australian driver's license, well, my, you know, it's a state by state thing, but my state driver's license here, it, it, even when I first moved to the States a dozen years ago, I, I it had a, a hologram over my photo, like the photo is embedded in the car and all my American friends were like, wow, that's incredible. And a friend of mine from the Midwest pulled her driver's license out of her wallet. It's a piece of paper. She unfolds it. <laughs> you know, it's got, it's the, anyone could hold it. <laughs> I, I was once with my friend, do you know, the philosopher, the late philosopher, Roger Scruton? Yes, of course. The wonderful Roger Scruton. Yeah. I was once driving with him in Washington, DC and we got pulled over. He was driving my car, but I, I think I had forgotten to update the registration or something. Anyway, we were pulled over and 
the policeman said, sir, may I please see your driver's license? And, you know, Roger, yes, certainly, officer. And then he pulls out, it, lo- it looked like a map. <laughs> it was an ancient document, out of, like, it, it, something from, you know, out of uh, Charles Dickens. It opens yeah. it up from the, his burrow uh, where he assured the policeman <laughs> that this was legitimate in the District of Columbia. And this shocked policeman looked at this, at this, 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 Papyrus back there. Sir, this is not uh, uh, acceptable in the District of Columbia. And then Rogers just kept saying, "No, I was assured that it was." And on and on. And then the, the policeman, this hardened DC cop, just looked kind of shocked, like I don't want to deal with yeah. this. Just, just go on. <laughs> yeah, we don't accept uh, we don't accept papyrus documents from eighteen thirty seven. So, uh, but just before we get back to you, I want—I still want to hear about this uh, this comedy seller gig because so I know so many comics in New York who've been, needless to say, smashed by the the pandemic, uh, and here in Australia as well. But to a to a lesser extent, there's it hasn't been quite as bad here. What what were they talking about, and was there much material about coronavirus, or was it all escapism? No, we were we're past that, baby. We you know we've been vaccinated. Nobody's talking about that. Well, now maybe again we're talking about it. But what I I was a little worried that they'd all be afraid to make jokes yeah. because they might face annihilation on social media and never get you know never get to Saturday Night Live or whatever. Oh right, you mean that they might get cancelled? Yes, uh, but here's what happened. Not only do you have to show my vaccination card, but you have to take your phone and then they give you an envelope. They seal it and then you have to keep it in you know in front of you the whole time, the, the sealed envelope. How great. So they, great. they take your phone. And if you're seen with a phone, I mean... You, you're never you, coming back to the cellar. Never allowed back in. That's fantastic. That makes me... I mean, the reason why I think that's so important if people don't work in comedy and don't understand is that there's a very big difference between a polished set that a person is putting out, which is their one hour special that they want to do for Netflix and the kinds of things that they might talk about at 11 PM on a a Saturday night at the comedy cellar. And you only get to the former by trying out a lot of shit in the, the and that's what what comedians do. You know, they, 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 sort of push the envelope and sometimes they go too far so that they learn that didn't work. That was just too, too, too harsh. Mm, Um, mm. And they did. What I found interesting was that initially you might think, Oh my goodness, this is even the comedy club has gone woke because uh, the comedians were diverse and there was an Asian young woman, a Muslim young woman, a gay guy, Two black guys, and then a, a, a depressed Dane, a depressed guy from Denmark, <laughs> uh, and they were there. And however, the, once they were telling their jokes, these were the most uh, incorrect jokes you could imagine. Mm. So mm. They, it's almost as if the, the Comedy Central is having a bit of laugh because they they are uh, representational. Yeah, but the right. Comedians are hysterically funny and incorrect, and each one was great. I love them. It's such a good place. I can't wait to go back. I hope that Delta doesn't derail things and that it's still 
that the cellar and all of the the live comedy and even just live eating and live everything in New York is able to to return. So you're on you're living on the outskirts of DC. Do you just give people a, a sense of what you do, and I'm also interested in what you sort of wanted to do when you were a young girl. Well, I am a resident scholar at a think tank, the American Enterprise Institute. But before that, I taught philosophy for many years in Massachusetts. I got my PhD at Brandeis and then taught at Clark University. But in 1997, I start, but it, I, once I had tenure, um, I'm not sure I would have done this before tenure, but things were different then. So I wasn't really worried about disapproval. So I would sometimes challenge sacred teachings of my, some of my colleagues in, in philosophy, some feminist philosophers, but I had tenure and I started challenging them and uh, they, that didn't go so well with them, but people in my field liked it. And the Atlantic, uh, that magazine, the Atlantic an editor had read something I'd written and asked me to write, a, write about the state of women's studies and feminism, write about it for the Atlantic. Because I wasn't writing as a conservative critic, I was writing as a feminist and a, a liberal, but who was disappointed in the increasing irrationality that I saw in feminist theory. But uh, once I started writing articles for more popular magazines and not just um, professional philosophy journals, that's when I just got a lot more attention as a, a writer and then was invited to DC to be part of this think tank, which was wonderful because by then I'd been teaching for almost 20 years. And this think tank, AEI, it's a university without students. So, and there are a lot of young people. So it's not that you're, you're you know, detached from the younger generation, but you don't have to grade papers, no mm. meetings, just, you can just write wonderful uh, colleagues and, I just loved it. So that's I love that. Doing. I love that. The idea of a university without students. It's like, isn't there an old gag about doctors saying like, it would be so fantastic to be a doctor if it wasn't for all of these fucking patients. Uh, yeah. you, know, you get to, <laughs> you get to go to a think tank and there are no students to annoy you. Is, I mean, AEI is a conservative think tank. Are you, have you been a conservative throughout your life or is this a, no. is this just a oh, fit no, that has happened no, by no. accident? Uh, I was, I'm a three generations of liberal socialist, possibly communist <laughs> parents and grandparents. And uh, no, very, very liberal. And still, I think of myself as a, I was sort of a hippie flower child, you know, I mean, I was, when I was younger, and, and thought of myself as very liberal, things were just different. Like the set, the people that wanted to practice censorship, they were on the right the people that wanted to control and shame, you know, they seem, you know, conservatives. And I was astonished to find these vices move into uh, left-wing circles. Mm. And so I just objected to the censoriousness and the rigidity. I don't know what happened, but I think the liberalism changed, but I still think of myself as the way I was, but, the world changed. I mean, I, I think I think of that critique, Christina, as being something that I've seen really ramp up in the past mm, four or five years or so. I guess. I mean, 
I was at HuffPost Live in 2012 to 2016 as a, a, one of the founding host, hosts of, of that outfit and I saw the transition from uh, a, a playground in which everybody was able to articulate their opinions regardless of their identity to becoming to just the first shoots sprouting of uh, my being pilloried for having conversations with with people <clears throat> of minority ethnicities or or women simply by virtue of the fact that I'm a white man like that that attack the attack that you don't have standing to talk intellectually about something because of your sex or gender or sexuality or race or religion was an accusation that I was able to sort of rule out of conversation immediately when I started in the early 20 teens. And nowadays, of course, it's an accusation that carries an enormous amount of weight. And I almost have to preface everything I say by saying, of course, I understand my privilege as a white man, but X, Y, Z. But you've been on this bandwagon. I mean, you wrote Who Stole Feminism in 1995. You wrote The War Against Boys in 2001. This is a long standing thing for you. Was it what were you seeing back then that was already bad? I was seeing what everyone else is seeing right now, but it was a sideshow. It was limited to sort of obscure corners of the academy. But when I started writing articles about what was going on in women's studies, I, I began to go to conferences and I began to attend their workshops and read the journals in feminist theory. And what I I wanted to laugh. It was so extreme. And it's the way many people respond right now when they find, you know, just I think it was yesterday someone was complaining that a, a white woman had written a book about noodles and rice. What was she thinking with this kind of <laughs> cultural appropriation? And in the face of something like that, you just think this can't be true. But yeah. Yet, who owns so rice, Christina? Who owns who owns the noodle? Let's investigate. This needs rice. further investigation at your think tank. But at the time, was it that absurd? Yeah, pretty much. But um, was it? I mean, was it like, let's think about, because uh, I, I wasn't cognizant of these issues when I was in, like, school. I just, I was taught, I guess, smaller liberal principles, treat you know, girls are just as, as good as, uh, as boys, uh, you know, racism and sexism are the worst things in the world. I had a, as a little kid, that's what I was thinking. And that, that was the era in which you were writing who stole feminism. So at the time I, I don't. Oh no, no. What I'm saying is it was not in the society at large. It was only in the, these very, very, uh, rarefied circles. Of, oh, I see. You were writing as a philosopher to philosophers and activists, I was writing essentially. to philosophers, uh, uh, as a philosopher to philosophers. And these were, I just couldn't find a moderate voice. I couldn't find the voice of common sense. It was, I would say at the time it was, uh, Marxism was too concerned. In fact, Marxism was criticized for being sexist, but that didn't mean they rejected the basic uh, approach. They very much used that approach, but just crossed out race and put gender. And it was this language of, of this, uh, theories about women, uh, the war against women, and that, that we were captive to a sex gender system in which women were relentlessly preyed upon by men. 
it, and it was bolstered by these uh, sort of dramatic statistics of how many women are dying from eating disorders if they're not already dead from being beaten by their husband or battered by their boyfriend and, uh, and then they're cheated out of their salaries and it was just unremitting grimness and I began to check the sources like where did they find these statistics and who stole feminism was uh, largely uh, an effort to confirm the claims that undermine these radical theories and these claims just didn't hold up it's not to say that there aren't problems and there are areas where there are pathologies and you know horrible crimes and so forth but in the united states probably in Australia, it's the exception, not the rule. And that overall, liberal feminism, which I very, very much defended all along, it had, was a great success story. One of the great chapters in the history of the human quest for freedom and, and, and equality. And I wanted to celebrate that tradition and point out that it was working. Um, but I faced people who believed their own propaganda and, um, it was, it was harder to break through than I thought. I mean, I thought all I had to do was point out that their arguments were lacked soundness and that would be sufficient to persuade them. Now they probably think the same thing about me. They probably think that I'm just, I've internalized the patriarchy or suffer from some kind of, uh, uh, conceptual disorder mm. but um or you enjoy the benefits of of white privilege and and wealth and so you see the world through a uh, a lens that doesn't have adequate consideration for the struggles of most women well i would say that uh yeah but most of the people i was debating enjoyed those privileges mm. so it wasn't uh that so can you can you place me on a on a, a chronology here if we think about second wave feminism stretching from the 60s through to the period where you start writing who stole feminism and you start thinking about all this stuff or at least putting it on paper was was your sense that was your sense kind of like okay we've done this like feminism sort of worked we've kind of made it we don't need to go further or was your sense that like, let's keep moving further, but in a different way than the way that my colleagues are advocating for. The second, I uh, would always try to be open to the possibility that there were serious inequities. Um, and I, even today, I believe there are for women in certain places in certain uh, fields, for example, but, what I didn't see was systemic sexism in the United States. I just, it didn't seem like the best explanation for the configuration of men and women in the society. They, it, it seemed. But what, are, what other explanation could there be for, for example, the lack of representation in Congress, the absence of any female presidents, the lack of, female, of women on boards of Fortune 500 companies and so on? other than there being a, a structural sort of boys club that looks down its nose at hiring women as colleagues? The explanation that, that I gave was that the, that the liberal analysis of incremental change, empiricism, was working. And that it was basically 
up to women to take uh, advantage of the opportunities. If they wanted to make as much money as a man, it probably makes sense to enter the same field and to uh, work the same number of hours. And then I would look to see how are men and women distributed in, in the workplace. And it would turn out that if you look at the lowest paying jobs, you will find things like social worker or um, your early childhood educator and the highest paying job, let's say for a college graduate, a highest paying job would be a petroleum engineer. And it would turn out that the vast majority of petroleum engineers were men and the social workers and child, early childhood educators were women. So then you say, okay, uh, were women coerced into their choice? And I would, I studied the literature, you know, on vocation and choice and preferences. And for my book, I interviewed great numbers of people. And it, mostly if I, when I would talk to young women who might be majoring in education or psychology or social work, they considered it insulting to be told that they were just sort of um, victims of a system that where they had no choice. They were just led to make this because of a, of a legacy of patriarchy. Um, they didn't feel that they weren't free if they had wanted to study petroleum engineering, that uh, they couldn't do it. And so I just didn't think that that was a, that the idea that it was discrimination, that that was why women were held back. Do I think that it might be one reason? There might be something to explore here. I'm always open to that. But then there just were so many other explanations well i mean for- the, stru- the the critique of of the structural feminist who 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 you oppose might also involve <clears throat> questions about why some professions are better paid than others and might say well isn't it <clears throat> excuse me isn't it convenient that the jobs that women do tend to be worse paid than the jobs that men tend to do so that engineers end up getting paid more than early childhood educators what's your response to that structural criticism uh, again, that's an, that's something I was always open to, but I just had a hard time finding a solution because a lot of it is so market driven. And the I remember I was once debating a feminist economist, and she said how shocking it was that um, someone, a zookeeper, someone at a zoo, which is mo- at the time anyway, mostly men, earns more than a than a childcare worker. And she said, and aren't children, you know, don't they count more than animals? <laughs> and I, I just said, well, Depends I, on the child. I, I don't know if you've met I, my I, twins. Yeah. But I, I will uh, concede that children count more than animals. But, you know, to the, the to give a giraffe a bath or something, it's just it's a special <laughs> skill set. Again, you, know? you haven't tried to bathe my twins. <laughs> oh, that's true. <laughs> no, uh, early childhood education or... It's something a lot of women know how to do. You have a huge uh, supply of women who can do it. And a petroleum engineer, it's just a a different set of people. And uh, it's a lot uh, harder. And you you can't make that comparison. And, I mean, I remember some, some, I was speaking at Oberlin College. And a student wrote, I sort of said what I just said to you, and a student was just so incensed that 
how her major in, I think I forget what she was majoring in, you know, feminist dance therapy or something, <laughs> puppeteering, I don't know, something, and how, what kind of a society didn't allow her to pursue her interests. Well, you know what? We, our society allows you to pursue your interests, uh, and especially if you're upper middle class young woman at Oberlin, you have probably more opportunity to do that than anyone in, on the planet. Uh, you can do that, but uh, you can't then say the society is going to reward it exactly the same. Mm. That will depend on the, I don't know, simple things like supply and demand. However, there's a, a more serious thing. It is, it is, it, it, feminists have been pushing this for years and I'm not completely averse to it. There could be, they just discounted the value of caregiving. And so we've, you know, we're not paying people what they're worth. But then the question is, what do you do? And the, the most um, practical solution was something called comparable worth, where people wouldn't be paid according to their specific job, but just the kind of job. And they were going to try to work it out so that, you know, you wouldn't end up with, say, a, a cafeteria worker earning less, which were many women earning less, say, than a janitor. Uh, but in, it turned out to be impossible to apply it to the real world. Well, I mean, how would you even do that unless you're going to have a centrally planned Soviet-style economy? I mean, you might be able to do it inside one institution. A university might be able to make a policy internally that it's going to pay people that way, but you can't do it across an economy. Yeah, then they'd end up not, you know, then it turns out that the janitors have to work different hours and you know so they're... christina let's just get into some of the data about this because i don't want it to be too vague for people basically when we when, when when people are making this critique about women only earn 77 cents on the dollar or whatever you you alluded earlier we're, we're talking now about the different uh, jobs that women and men do and whether or not there's a kind of a structural bias that compensates men better but that's not the, the nub of most people's criticism. Most people's criticism is what you mentioned earlier, which is that if a woman goes for gets the same job as a man and works the same hours as a man, she doesn't get compensated the same way that the man would. Is that true? I haven't been able to find evidence of that being tr true. And let me explain. It, it turns out that, yes, if you look at engineers, and people have said this to me, and they'll, and they'll show me the data, Engineers, women engineers earn less. But it turns out that there are certain specialties that pay more. So if you go into electrical engineering, you earn more than an environmental engineer. And it, but then it, women are overrepresented among environmental engineers. And men dominate the uh, electrical, nuclear, petroleum engineers. You find far more men. So you have to then look at the specialties, but then you can't stop there. You have to look how many hours a week do they work? How many hours, uh, how, how far are they willing to travel to the job? It turns out men are willing to travel a lot farther. Are they willing to work weird hours? This turns out for, for high paying professions in law and in, you know, media and so forth, there's a, Employers give a real premium to people who are on demand, you know, who can be there all the time. And um, this turns out to be uh, one of the explanations for the wage gap. And, and I saw a study of Uber drivers. Uh, it, 
Uber, you know, nobody's discriminating. You, it's an algorithm how you get paid. You, you drive, you take passengers, and you're paid. And it turned out there was, I forget the exact number, but, you know, like an 18% difference uh, favoring men. And some economists took it, looked at it very carefully. And once they did the controls, and yes, you know, maybe it was that men worked uh, more dangerous hours, you know, early in the morning or something. And, and that, that explained it a little bit. But then it turned out women were willing to work hours men didn't like on, I don't know, Sunday morning or whatever. It, it, that wasn't the explanation. Ultimately, they found out it was that men drove faster. Huh. <laughs> that was, they mm. were just getting more, more job. So what do you do with that? Well, I would tell women, you know, uh, or make sure the men aren't speeding or I don't know, whatever you do. They're not, it wasn't evidence they were breaking the law. They were just more aggressive drivers. Mm. So is that discrimination or is it now, I guess, um, someone who's always looking to find um, fault with the system would say, well, it, because, okay, so women are brought up to be more cautious and risk averse. And so there was a tremendous a lot, amount of research and effort to change the way we raise kids and to turn, you know, change the way children play and a lot of pressure on parents, you know, not just to give your daughter a doll and give your boy, you know, the uh, train set. That's been going on for as long as I can remember since the late 60s. Free to be you and me, like this best-selling record for parents of young, among parents of young children. And why can't William have a doll and all of that? And stipulate there are some boys, uh, certainly a minority of boys, who will play constructively with a doll and want to play the, the way girls typically play, but not very many. And any expert on sort of childhood play or uh, playground dynamics will tell you that the typical play of little boys is called rough and tumble play. And there's a lot of mock fighting and cheering and, you know, boom, bang, sound effects. Girls do a certain amount of rough and tumble play. But they mostly don't. They prefer imaginative theatrical games, playing house, playing school. There's also a lot of turn-taking games or exchanging confidences with a best friend. See a lot of little girls doing that. Most boys, they're not doing that. They want the rough and tumble plays. One teacher said she, she would put the, the kids in this room where they could just run riot and the girls would always get bored and want to go, okay, let's go to the art corner. Let's go to the doll corner. She said, no boy ever wanted to leave this romper room. You know, where they, they no boy ever wanted to. And that's just, now it's not a hundred percent of kids. There are always children who defy the stereotypes of their sex, but the majority do not. And people have been trying to change the way kids play to get the girls to be more like the boys. And so far, it hasn't worked. I mean, now Just, you're now you're touching on something that is really controversial and would not have been foreseen as being controversial a, a generation ago when you were writing about the stuff that was controversial then about the difference in pay and so on, because now you're talking about essentially biology and gender and the relationship between gender and sex. 
um, it is almost taboo. I mean, you you will certainly risk being called a bigot or a transphobe if you start speaking about ways in which biological sex maps directly onto preferences and gender. Now, well, no, no uh, one would say it maps directly. People are human beings are very complicated, and all of us have things about us that are probably more typical of the opposite sex. However, when you study human beings and you study their children, you study adolescents, adults, and you look at their choices, their expressed preferences, most of us, more or less, embody the stereotypes of our sex. And I would say of trans people, to me, I still haven't had a good explanation of this, but it seems to me that it's kind of proof that the biology is destiny because there may be something biologically different about them in which they strongly identify as female and have uh, female preferences. I mean, we are creatures of nature and, you know, in our evolution, there was certain uh, value to uh, a mother being nurturing and a father, you know, protecting from predators and so forth. So it seems to me it would be surprising if we were exempt entirely from, you know, human evolution. I mean, from from natural mm. evolution. I mean, so, what's interesting, it's in, what I find interesting, and I want to dig into this a lot more with non-binary people and and with trans, with binary trans people, is I, I was interviewing a, um, a trans woman, She's a Fijian Australian. She's terrific, but uh, she really—and it wasn't on this podcast. So, but I'll—I'll I'll I'll come back to her if the listeners are interested. She was almost quite offended by the gender fluid sort of non-binary fad or fashion at the moment with young people who feel like they're on a spectrum of gender. And I'm not denying that. I think m- many of us are on a ge- on a spectrum of of gender, just as we're on a spectrum of sexuality in some way. But her sense of herself was that when she was a little boy, she was still very much a woman inside, a girl inside, and had always felt that way. And this is characteristic of transgender people stretching back, you know, for thousands of years. We have evidence of people who have just always felt a self-expression that maps onto the, the biology of the sex that they weren't assigned at birth. And that, I wonder what you make of whether or not there's a fit between that and gender non-binariness, because if there are characteristics that are normally associated with one sex, like, as you were saying earlier, an interest in taking things apart and putting them back together again, like if you get a thousand, if you get a thousand males of the species into a room together and you say, I'm going to give you a choice, you can either spend the next hour taking this widget apart and putting it back together again, or you can spend the next hour talking to a family about how they can better improve their communication, then the men go for the former. And if you get a thousand females in a room, they tend to go more for the latter. So if there is some connection between our biology and our preferences, then that works in the, in the, in the, uh, in a world in which transgender people exist, but within fixed binaries, but it doesn't necessarily work in a world in which non-binary fluidity uh, is supposed to coexist with the rigid gender binary of the transgender man or woman. 
Yeah, well, let's just sense. talk about um, a, a trans person who it's a little boy, but who feels like he's a girl and wants to play like a girl. What that? And I understand that because I wanted to play like a girl, and I was a girly girl, and uh, you know, wanted the bride dolls and the you know Laura Ashley surroundings, and I understand it's, that it's it's uh, something very very potent in in a human being and and then i had i have two sons a, a stepson tamler whom i think you know yep talk about him later <laughs> and um, and david and it was just different you know i had to suddenly be in a world of, of sports obsession even the way they they relate boys talk to each other both my sons but all Many men that I know, they they, they show friendship by uh, joking with each other and sort of caustic put downs, but but that are really friendly. <laughs> it's the way men show affection. Mm. This kind of kind of razzing on each other, and it's very different uh, than the way most women relate to each other. Mm. And I've just watched it up close. But then I look at the data and see, for example, that that. What I'll just give you one example that's that's um, quite fascinating, and you may have heard about uh, young. There's a group of girls who are born with um, a genetic disorder, uh, congenital adrenal hyperplasia, mm. CAH girls, and they were exposed to high levels of androgen, male hormones, in the mother's womb, and they evince the preferences of typical boys. They are rough and tumblers and they behave very much like boys. Typical boys or what we call typical male behavior. And that would tell you that there's something in our biology, in our hormones, perhaps the brain, but maybe not yet fully understood that is at play. And, and here's here, but here's the important thing. So what? We, and here's the problem. The, the feminist groups, the activists will just focus on everything that's bad about what they call the gender system. But what about the things that are good? What about people that just enjoy being what they feel they are and girls, little girls playing the way they want to play? And by the way, little girls games um, are... I. People say, well, boys play, you know, these, they have these, these superheroes and girls don't have them. Yes, they do. Girls have, you know, princesses and who gets to be mommy when you play house. And there are all sorts of power struggles. They're a little more uh, hard to see. Boys mm. uh, are just are more, you know, altogether ram sort of boisterous about it. But girls, girls play is immensely rich and complicated. And so is the boys, and it's it's just healthy for them. It's the way they become, you know, they 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 like the boys that, that are engaging in rough and tumble play. It is the opposite of violence because in violence, kids part as enemies. They look unhappy. They're tears. They're uh, the boys who are violent in a social environment are not popular. Boys who are good rough and tumblers are very popular. There is they can hardly suppress laughter when they're playing. And what worries me is increasingly there are many teachers and 
mothers maybe who regard rough and tumble play as a form of violence mm-hmm. and they want to control it or suppress it. And th- this is why I wrote I mean, one of the issues I addressed in the war against boys is that we, we have to meet children where they are and on average, boys are not girls, and we can't set the behavior of girls as the gold standard and view boys as lacking. I, I just mm. uh, and I so I see a lot of um, systemic prejudice against boys in schools. I I so I have twins, uh, Christina. As I mentioned, one of them is a boy and one of them is a girl. They're almost four. Uh, oh, and- perfect perfect uh, laboratory perfect lab exactly and because i'm married to a guy we don't have a female role model in the household so this question of gender and how much or how little we try to encourage or discourage expressions of gender uh, it's like stereotypical gender expressions how much we should be discouraging the the warlike instincts of our son when he's you know he wants to shoot to, to play shooting at people and stabbing people and things like that. Uh, Like firstly, it's absolutely obvious what, that there are, that there are sex-based gender differences to me just from this lab experiment. I mean, we have been as, as hands off as you could possibly be in encouraging them both to be as interested in, in things from all genders. We haven't imposed colors or, you know, anything pinks and blues, none of that. And uh, the reality is that, whether it's through cultural osmosis or something else, they are stra- the, the, our son is a boy and our daughter is a girl. There is absolutely no two ways about that. Um, but what do you think that a, a boy who's almost four needs that the general zeitgeist is not likely to give him? Well, I would say that I'm, I'm very worried because they're, I think, in their schools and in some places, families, they exist in this environment of disapproval. And one study that really shocked me was uh, there was a couple of uh, researchers at, I think it was the University of Maine, and they studied, um, they were observing classrooms. And how often did the teacher interfere, intervene, and redirect their play. And it turned out it rarely happens to little girls. People like the way, the teachers like the way they play. Boys, on the other hand, were constantly getting uh, redirected towards another kind of play because the teachers didn't like the superhero play. And they certainly didn't like, you know, the sword fights and the uh, fantasies of, you know, monsters eating a city and that kind of thing. And so the boys were encouraged well does the monster have to eat the city i mean can't the monster like deliver food to the city this sort of thing (laughs) and the boys were didn't understand and i remember one father um i read about this father in california who uh, he had a very well-behaved little boy no never had any problems but he was brought into the school because the teachers were very worried about billy billy had written a story and then the teachers and the counselors showed the parents the shocking pictures. And they were people on a boat having a sword fight. And there were heads and there were bloody swords. And the father was there and said, but, but he likes pirate stories. Mm. And they said, well, we're worried about, you know, what he's learning at home and this sort of thing. And the father was just so kind of heartbroken because he said, if these teachers have so little sympathy with my son's imagination, 
How are they going to teach him? And these, these researchers at the University of Maine wondered if that might be part of the reason why boys are so far behind in reading and writing. In, in, uh, I, and I know it's true in Australia as well as the United States. I mean, girls are a little behind in math and science, but catching up quickly, if not closing the gap altogether, it was never as large as the reading gap. The reading and writing, writing gap is a chasm. But the thing about reading and writing is that when children are the earliest age, they want to write about what, they're, what excites them. And for a lot of little boys, it might be their video game or, you know, a, a pirates, uh, or their drawings or their stories might be about pirates with swords and, and you know, cutting off heads. I mean, they might, <laughs> that might be happening. And the other thing is we seem to have forgotten that these fantasies of little boys, this superhero play, it's not about violence. And we just seem to have forgotten the whole tradition of, of child psychology about it's the way that they they are developing their young manhood. They are also ways of, of conquering fear and controlling the world through their stories. But what do you mean, Christina, when you say it's not about violence? Because a fantasy of being a pirate who chops people's heads off is a fantasy of violence, isn't it? It would appear to be, but it's like fairy tales and things. Why don't they terrify children? Because they're really about something else. It's like a dream or something. You know, you can't go in and start policing the dreams. And in these cases, these are their. this is their fantasy life. Now, do we have evidence that these kids little, all, you know, typical little boys become violent because they've had fantasies about pirates. Nothing of the kind. There is no evidence of that. Right. I, no mean, so I think part yeah. of people's concern here probably dovetails with the background reality of, you know, at the beginning of the conversation, you mentioned domestic violence, uh, you know, high rates of male violence against women, a kind of a you know, we're living through this moment of toxic masculinity versus not all men uh, excuses. And I wonder what, if people are trying to find what the source of that is. I mean, in, uh, I worry about, I worry about the sort, of, the sort of crisis of masculinity in the sense that the, the healthy expression of a robust uh, but respectful masculinity is nowhere to be seen really you you either it strikes me that maybe people like president obama exhibited that sort of masculinity but and and you know figures like jordan peterson are popular because they're encouraging a uh a reconnection to an earlier version of masculinity but at the moment it feels quite polarized between a vision of masculinity which inhabits this sort of toxic, Trumpy, alt-right, incel, perverted, sexually harassy, grabby, Cuomo-y right. sort, of, sort of masculinity that we definitely don't want our sons to grow into. But on well, the well, other hand, me, a kind of yeah. a, an emasculated, effete, uh, feminine masculinity that also probably doesn't honour what's good about men. Well, uh, the first thing to say is that Sociologists have long made a distinction between uh, healthy masculinity, normative ma masculinity, and pathological masculinity or protest. Now, a, a young man who is evincing protest masculinity or pathological masculinity shows his manliness by 
preying on weaker people by destroying things, wreaking havoc. A boy who evinces positive masculinity or, and a man, it's just the opposite. They, they protect weaker people. They build. They don't destroy. They are constructive protectors. They're not destroyers. And I believe the majority of men in probably Australia, the United States, um, evince a constructive masculinity. They're not pathological. And to take an example, to take a, I don't know, a Harvey Weinstein or some kind of a predator and show and set that up is the, you know, that's the example. That's, that's standard for all men. That would, that's like taking, that's the classic move of a bigot where you will take, you know, one bad example and say that represents the whole. And now, do I think boys need to be brought up to be, for lack of a better word, gentlemen? Yes. We, we have to civilize young men uh, and young women too. Young women, there's also, we can talk about this later, there's also something I would call toxic femininity. Uh, so girls need to be civilized too. But most societies do put a lot of effort into redirecting the natural sort of uh, high spiritedness, sometimes uh, aggression of young men, you want to channel that to positive ends. And uh, I think we have a problem in society of doing that. I think a lot of young men are very confused and feel disapproved of. Majority of them, are they going to be violent? I think if we're going to talk about violence, violent men, we're probably going to have to talk about the one thing very few feminists want to talk about, which is fatherlessness. And um, boys that grow up without fathers, particularly boys who are in very uh, poor families, where maybe the mother can't, does can't, you know, there's very little social capital and maybe isolated. Where does that boy learn his manhood? Not from a father he loves and respects, but from uh, friends from peers that he may meet. And that, you know, could be a gang. A lot of boys replace the father with a gang. Now it's not good for girls. There are another set of, of harms that can befall girls and young women who grew up without fathers. But for boys, this is so well known. And we have had conferences at my think tank, AEI, we get together with liberal think tanks and libertarian think tanks and far left think tanks. There is widespread agreement that fatherlessness um, is it, it puts a boy at risk for all sorts of pathologies and and um, it just it's we, we let me put it this way if this becomes if this becomes the norm for a society of boys raised without fathers again middle class families are you know the mother can make all sorts of admirable uh, compensation and so forth, but mothers that don't have those opportunities and the boy just grows up. Now the girls that are from the same family, from a broken home and a poor family, she has a role model, usually a heroic mother who's working two jobs and taking care of the kids. The boy doesn't identify with that. He feels lost. And that this seems to be uh, just fairly well-established explanation, except that, well, even if it's obviously the case or quite likely 
a good explanation for what's gone wrong, it's now politically difficult to talk about. We've just moved on. People aren't mm. talking about trying to stabilize families. So here we are. Do you understand young feminists today, Christina? Oh, I'm going to sound so old. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit of a leading question. You can you can enter the briar patch if you want. No, you know, I get worried because when I, I was a loud mouth, thank God there were no video, there was no YouTube or anything when I was in college because I was a protester and I remember once screaming at a dean, calling him a fascist. And ah, thank goodness there's no recording. <laughs> but, um, uh, and so sure of myself. And then I remember going home and, and I had this older uncle, un uncle guy and he was in favor of the Vietnam war and supported Nixon. And I was just horrified. Uncle guy, get, you know, so like, so conservative and uncool. And, and now I think, am I uncle guy? You know, have I like grown so old now, but I'm Uncle Guy and I'm defending Richard Nixon. But I'm not. I'm not defending Richard Nixon. I'm defending like freedom and being nice to people. There's so much cruelty in this new feminism of of calling out men and wanting to destroy them. Now, if they are, uh, you know, preying on women and they're disgusting, you know, harassers and things, then fine. But what I find is men are getting in trouble just for them for, you know, almost nothing uh, telling a, a, you know, a joke that's overheard by some, you know, police woman in the corner and then wanting to destroy him. I've seen a lot of meanness and just gratuitous malevolence. But isn't and the, I, I mean, isn't the counterpoint to that Christina, that, that women have had to live in, in environments that were casually demeaning to them for so long that they need to draw lines in the sand that seem a little bit petty, but without those petty lines being drawn and some men being uh, harshly slapped down, you're never going to evolve to a situation where there's uh, a sense of where workplaces, for example, are equally welcoming to men and women. Yeah, I, I, I get that. And I've sometimes felt that that, okay, you, you really have to go overboard to make the point uh, so it gets through to people and even the most clueless man has got to realize, you know, this, you know, I, I mean, I was in favor of the Me Too movement when it first started because I did think that even though most men weren't behaving like well, Harvey Weinstein, I was, you know, a very specific kind of situation, but overall, uh, the workplace had to be brought up to 21st century standards and we needed to, to make, you know, sort of redraw the, the, the social contract between men and women and towards civility and mutuality and respect. So I was all in favor of that. But what I worry is that when I see the uh, shaming and the sometimes the gleeful destruction of people and even someone like let's say louis ck we were talking about comedians and stipulate you know it wasn't cool what he did it was you know not cool not not acceptable and crazy but how much does he have to be punished and do you want him never to appear again do you want him you know eliminated and it seems like many women just think he should be a permanent exile from society well i don't I, get, I, I believe in forgiveness and 
I, I see too little forgiveness in this movement. And I also see going after people like we saw with Aziz Ansari, the other the comedian that was shamed because of a bad date with this, I don't know who, if she was an actress or whatever she was, but it was just horrible. It was, it was cruel. I do. Man. I still remember at the Emmys, he was, when he was nominated for his show and nobody applauded and they all sat there. He was the only nominee who didn't get a round of applause because he was a persona non grata. And I knew Aziz a bit before he was famous in New York. And uh, like the idea that this person would have, as you say, a bad day. I mean, it was a bit more than a bad date in the sense that this woman felt kind of awkward and a little bit violated by the fact that he seemed to have gone down on her in a bad way or something. I don't quite understand that. I don't recall the exact Well, I'm not going to hear his side of it. Of course, he's not allowed to tell it. But she didn't sound that easy to be with as a date either. I mean, there are a lot of bad dates. Yeah, and she didn't say anything at the time, but she just sort of left and then felt like it didn't pan out the way that she'd wanted it to, and then she wrote a big article about it, and he was... And he served... Remember, he served white wine instead of red and she wanted red or oh i forgot like that, that. <laughs> i forgot that uh yeah that and that that i think was a high point of of disproportion i mean there's also a question of not only are you forgiving but also is a person's creative work necessarily the domain of their personal moral life i mean this takes us back to like you know we're not going to listen to any rock and roll music because all of the things that people were doing when they were writing those songs in the 1960s were pretty personally abysmal as well. So uh, to what extent do well, we Bobby, hold people me, accountable for their moral code the and their creative work? The New York Times had an article by a respected art historian. Can we enjoy Titian? The painter, the, oh. the great, great Renaissance painter Titian, we can't enjoy him because, you know, look at the rape of Europa and so forth. It was it it was so it was one of those moments where I just couldn't mm. believe that we're going to do this. We're going to go back and engage in this kind of presentism, take present standards. And by the way, those aren't my standards. I don't, you know, they talk about the male gaze, you know, Titian was gazing <laughs> at these women's bodies. Well, does he know that the women didn't wish to be gazed at? And, uh, Anyway, it's... Yeah, I mean, the retroactivity is also ridiculous. I mean, I was talking to someone who was claiming, you know, who was talking about something that had been casually racist in the 1950s. I think it was John Wayne or something, and they were outraged by this. And I was saying, I mean, the likelihood that if you were alive in that time that you wouldn't share the the cultural and moral assumptions of your peers is zero because you currently share the moral cultural assumptions of your peers. Like if you, if you agree with basically everybody who's woke right now, then I can guarantee that you would have agreed with everybody who was racist in the 1950s because you're an intellectual follower. You're showing no spine. You know, if you would have to be believing something truly radical, if you can show me that you believe something wildly unpopular right now, and you're vocal about it, then I'll believe that you might have done the same in the 1950s. Otherwise, we have to assume that you're a conformist and you would have believed whatever the majority of people believed then too. Right, and it's, and it's not as if people aren't going to join. I'm certain that future generations will look back with horror at the way we treat animals mm. in factory farms mm. and continue to eat meat and exact such a toll in animal suffering. And 
you know, I try to be, you know, only eat meat that's from uh, <laughs> happy animals range and all of that. <laughs> my daughter, my animals. daughter says that now, Christina, because I've tried to, you know, she she went through a period where she wasn't crazy about eating meat once she realized when she was three what it was, and so now she asks if it's a happy sheep or a sad sheep based on whether or not I bought organic <laughs> free range meat or not all factory yeah well whole meat. foods it, do you have whole foods in australia no but we sort of know what it what it is the organic the organic supermarket chain. they have scores one two three four just about how you know intensely happy <laughs> oh my god this chicken had ballet like. classes this <laughs> <laughs> this cow learned french um look i'll uh, i'll wrap you up but I, I just want to want you to reflect on something that you said earlier about are, are you your your nixon loving uncle uh, yeah. it's something I think about a lot. Like it's very hard when you're opposing a modern, uh, self-proclaimed progressive movement, not to get painted into the corner of feeling like you are the Nixon loving uncle and that they are the heirs to Jermaine Greer and Camille Paglia and whoever else it might be, Martin Luther King Jr. And, and I have to keep reality checking myself and going, hang on. I am the person who believes in the same principles that Gandhi and Mandela and Martin Luther King did. These people are people who are behaving in a way that would not look different from Joe McCarthy. So don't allow myself to feel bad about the fact that I'm currently unpopular amongst the most progressive bullies. They're not actually progressives. They're censorious witch hunters uh, so don't cop it. Do you have any advice to younger people who are finding it hard to, I don't know, to, to regard, well, to I, remember I that would, they're the good guys? Well, for one thing, it's, I, I always believe in kindness and giving people the benefit of the doubt, not judging people by their worst moment. And, and you know, if someone had some, made some mistake, that's not the sum total of who they are. So just basic human decency. The second thing is that I completely agree with you. I, I don't feel that I am uh, like just becoming grouchy and old and not understanding the changing, you know, and the, the, the grouchy old man. <laughs> well, you're clearly not becoming you. grouchy and old because you've been grouchy and old since you were a young woman. You were writing this yeah. stuff in the <laughs> 1990s. <laughs> Get off my lawn kind of thing. Uh, because um, I think that a lot of young people have been, uh, what would be the word? I don't want to say uh, indoctrinated, but yeah, kind of indoctrinated by a relentless uh, catechism of this, these theories about how oppressed, you know, young women learning how oppressed they are and the society is rigged against them. They've learned it, you know, they, they've learned the statistics and they believe it. And so when I talk to them, I'm just trying to point out that, you know, it may not be that bad and it may be more complicated and things may not be so perfect for men either. And maybe we're just all human and that what we should be, striving for is, as I said before, just mutual uh, affection and understanding. And I think that most women and men want that. They want to be friends and not enemies. There's a small group that wants a gender war. Most of us want 
gender peace. And uh, that's, I just refuse to believe that that's reactionary. And I think that history, there's a one long lesson is this combination of people with bad information and moral passion, and you get fanaticism. And I think we're in a period of fanaticism as you compare it to McCarthyism or uh, maybe even prohibition because prohibition lasted a long time in this country, the United States. And I think this we're, we're in for, this is going to take a while. <laughs> and so many people are passionate that this is the explanation for all evil. And, you know, we just have to ban the demon alcohol. And in this case, we just have to ban, you know, male and white privilege and then all will be good. So people are carried away and I just hope to talk them down, but I'm open to the possibility that, they can talk me down. So I'll talk to anybody. I'll debate anybody. And I did come to Australia. You know, I know. I wanted hey, to. I, I wanted to ask you about what that clusterfuck was. Oh, but, my uh, goodness! Oh well. <laughs> that's a conversation. You talk about it. It's a conversation time. for another time. Come back on the. Come back on the show anytime. It's great to talk to you, Christina. Thanks for. I'm glad we could catch up. Great. Okay. Bye bye. Thank you. Take care.